Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. My name is Martin Klimke. I'm an associate professor here at NYU Abu Dhabi and the Associate Dean of Humanities. I also have the pleasure of being one of the co-conveners of the conference on revisiting 1968 and the global 60s that this keynote uh, is a part of. Our conference is actually the result of an international collaboration with our dear colleagues from NYU New York and NYU um, Shanghai. It's the second event in a series of conferences the first one was held in March uh, at NYU Shanghai, and the last one will be held uh, in December uh, in New York. While existing scholarship on 1968 and the global 60s continues to largely concentrate on connections to and from the U.S. and Western Europe, our conferences focus on Asia, Africa, the Middle East, South America, and Eastern Europe. The topics of our analysis range from decolonization and national liberation movements, grassroots politics and counterculture, counter-revolutionary networks and foreign policies, to the various forms of protest, dissent and generational rebellion, transnational relations and the politics of memory with regard to 68 and the 60s on a global level. Our aim is to balance the local, regional, as well as national causes and manifestations of the 60s on the one hand, with the transnational linkages and international forces on the other hand, examining how structural similarities and post-war trends in economics, uh, in, in economical, political, cultural, and social um, areas have triggered potentially similar or different responses across the world. And we are therefore especially delighted to welcome Professor Jean Allman um, as our keynote speaker tonight. Professor Allman teaches African history at Washington University in St. Louis, where she's a professor in the Department of History, the J.H. Hexter Professor in the Humanities with appointments in African and African-American Studies and Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies. And she's also the director of the Center for the Humanities. She is the author of, among many other publications, The Quills of the Porcupine, Asante Nationalism in an Emergent Ghana, 1954 to 1957, um, of I Will Not Eat Stone, A Women's History of Colonial Asante, and Tongnap, The History of a West African God. In addition, she has edited and introduced several collections, including Fashioning Africa, Power and the Politics of Dress. Her research on gender, colonialism, and social change has appeared in the Journal of African History, Africa, Gender and History, the Journal of Women's History, History Workshop Journal, and Souls. She's also the co-editor, together with Ellen Isaacman, of the New African Histories book series at Ohio University Press, and for six years edited the Journal of Women's History with Antoinette Burton. Her current research is, in her own words, very much a response to the pessimism that swept through African studies, particularly in the the United States and Europe, beginning in the 1970s, as a result of the widely perceived failure of the nationalist project in Africa. Her new project thus focuses on re-examining so-called nation times, a time when the West African state of Ghana, for example, was a pivotal site for imagining an entirely new non-aligned world, when Ghanaians, joined by a host of transnational actors such as African-American activists and intellectuals, Irish and Welsh 
nationalist, anti-nuclear peace activists, South African communists, and Caribbean pan-Africanists cooperated, colluded, and collided over how to build a non-racial, anti-imperialist, nuclear-free world at the height of the Cold War. And based on your current and previous work, we are very happy that you speak to us tonight on post-mortem of the African Revolution, rethinking the global 60s. Professor Allman, thank you very much for coming all the way from St. Louis, and please join me in a warm round of applause for welcoming. Good evening, everyone. I want to thank NYU Abu Dhabi for bringing me here, for Martin for putting together with his co-conveners a fabulous uh, conference. And mostly I want to thank uh, the workshop participants who've just filled these last two days with all sorts of wonderful ideas. This is kind of a new version of a project, so I'm really anxious uh, for your feedback. I hope I get it. This, by the way, is a picture taken a day or two after the coup in 1966 that overthrew Kwame Nkrumah, and that's a picture of Nkrumah there. 1960, the year of Africa, or at least that's what many in the global media called those heady days of African independence that, wis- that witnessed 17 former colonies win their freedom from colonial rule in a single year. What began as a trickle with Tunisia, Sudan, and Morocco in 1956 gained massive momentum with Ghana's independence in 1957, followed by Guinea's in 1958. By 1960, the flags of Britain, France, and Belgium were lowered on vast expanses of African territory. The Portuguese held on to their colonies until the mid-1970s, and white settler regimes in southern Rhodesia, southwest Africa, and South Africa clung tenaciously to power, the last, as we know, until 1994, despite rising international condemnation. But increasingly, they did so as international outcasts. By 1960, the direction of change seemed clear. Even Prime Minister Harold Macmillan had to acknowledge that very same year in Cape Town that, quote, the wind of change is blowing through this continent. Whether we like it or not, this growth of national consciousness is a political fact. Now, many of us have gathered here this week to reflect on the global 60s. I believe we are well served in remembering that that momentous decade in so many, many ways began as an African decade, fueled by an African spirit of resistance to empire and to colonialism, an African revolution as it was considered at the time, which was poised to remap the political and economic power across the globe, not just on the continent. Writing in 1960, Franz Fanon talked about the unbridled optimism that fueled that revolution, an optimism that was, and I quote, a direct product of the revolutionary action of the African masses. But if the global 60s began as an African decade, there was certainly no triumphal African end to that decade. Before the ink had even dried on Fanon's toward the African Revolution, Patrice Lumumba, the first democratically elected prime minister of the Congo, was assassinated on January the 17th, 1961, in a plot that included the United States and Belgian governments, probably on the direct orders of uh, Dwight David Eisenhower, um, as well as Congolese uh, accomplices, most famously General Mobutu Sese Seko. At the time, Fanon wrote, the fate of us all is at stake in the Congo. 50 years later, in a Guardian piece marking the half-century anniversary, Georges Nzongola in Talaja described Lumumba's murder as, quote, 
the most important assassination of the 20th century. Neither of these are overstatements, I would argue, neither political hyperbole. That the African Revolution was over before it really began would become increasingly evident within months of Macmillan's famous Wind of Change speech. Between 1960 and 68, 14 military coups swept African governments from office. Half of those occurred in 1966 alone. Among those ousted from power in 1966 was Kwame Nkrumah, who was overthrown by conservative forces representing the army and the police, also with the knowledge and tacit and perhaps real support of the United States government. While he was on a peace mission, I might add, to Beijing and Hanoi to broker an end to the Vietnam War. With Nkrumah's ouster, the African Revolution lost its epicenter, the Black Star of Africa, as it was known, and some might argue it also lost its momentum. So how do we meaningfully connect these African chronologies, these post-colonial African histories or tragedies to a global 1968? For Africanist scholars, 1968 or even the long 1960s, as we've discovered in the workshop, do not fit easily within this American or European paradigm which characterizes these years as ones of youthful rebellion, of the emergence of a new left, or of revolutionary momentum on every front from the political to the cultural. Indeed, for much of the African continent, and of course there are very important exceptions, some of which we've heard about, the decade from approximately 1965 to 75 was more than anything a decade of reversal and retrenchment a decade that witnessed the consolidation of neocolonialism and the emergence of often brutal military regimes, many backed by the United States, and the expansion economic as well as, as in terms of surveillance and foreign intervention of an ever-powerful U.S. empire. Indeed, as the 1960s drew to a close and the so-called nation-state building project in Africa seemed imperiled by coups, civil war, and mounting debt, the overriding question for so many was, what on earth went wrong? Perhaps you will be relieved to know that I do not intend to answer that question this evening. Rather, I would like what I'd like to do is to conduct something of a postmortem on the African Revolution of the 60s, but in a way that does not reproduce the sort of Afro-pessimism, that sort of relentless scholarly media fetishization with what went wrong. Uneven trade relations, we know them, economic dependence, outsized military, lack of infrastructure, corruption, export-driven economies, and new or neo-colonial forms of power, and the list goes on. Those analyses, whether they're launched from the left or from the right, with a laser-tight focus on foreign or else homegrown culprits, are fairly well-known, and I don't want to rehearse them here. What I'd like to do is foreground instead what actually perished in those critical years of the African Revolution, what was obliterated, and what, if anything, we should mourn. It is clear as we stand here, or I stand here, you sit, in 2016, that the independent African nation-state whose emergence inaugurated the global 60s did not perish. The boundaries marking out independent African states remain pretty much as the imperial armies and colonial mapmakers left them. Indeed, the African nation-state has proven in form, boundaries, substance, far more resilient than anyone writing in the 1960s or 70s could possibly have predicted. For better or for worse, and I would lean toward the latter, it is one of the enduring outcomes of the global 60s. So what was obliterated? What should we mourn? 
My core argument here will be fairly simple and straightforward. I want to argue that one of the most profound casualties of the 1960s was radical political imagination, or more precisely, the space for Africans and their progressive allies to imagine, with colonialism's demise, a new global politics of the possible. Now, what I'm gesturing toward here is not simply the vanishing or loss of a third world way forward by non-aligned states after Bandung, but of, very, of the very possibility of imagining futures not freighted by existing state formations or ideologies. The very possibility of imagining a destiny outside the domination of the free market and the hardened lines of Cold War rhetoric and retaliation. Borrowing from Robin Kelly, I'm speaking of the stultifying, the smothering of post-colonial freedom dreams. Lumumba, 1961. Ben Bella, 1965. Nkrumah, 1966. Now, if we center the African Revolution in our narration of the global 60s, these men appear not as victims, culprits, or some kind of preordained political failures inhabiting the margins of a global 1960s. Rather, they appear as canaries in the coal mine of post-war global politics, harbingers of what awaited those who contested the ruthlessness and brutality of an emerging neocolonial world order, an order that would be fully secured by the defeat of the African Revolution and well before youth took to the streets of Berkeley, Paris, or Prague. Now, there are countless ways to explore radical political imagination in Africa and its fate in the 1960s. Two recent publications, which literally landed on my desk as I was halfway through drafting this paper, the author of one of, of which is here, are outstanding examples of an emerging scholarship which is poised to remap our understanding of the global 60s, and I might add, of the inevitability of the post-colonial nation state. Uh, Jeffrey Burns 2016 Mecca of Revolution with its focus on Algeria details with power and eloquence the conflicting processes by which a progressive non-aligned third worldism evolved in a very short time with the overthrow of Ben Bella from a sub subversive transnational phenomenon into a mode of elite cooperation. Also, Gary Wilder's Freedom Time, Negritude, Decolonization, and the Future of the World provides a close reading of the lives of uh, Aimé Césaire and Leopold Senghor, both of whom refused to reduce colonial emancipation to national independence and positioned decolonization as an opportunity to remake the world. My own thinking on these questions was shaped early on by Robin Kelly, whose 2002 Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, helped me think about the importance of dreams for reconceptualizing the past, the importance of vision, imagination, and of closely looking at the spaces in which they flourish and where, in turn, they flounder. I want to encourage us to take seriously those freedom dreams and particularly the places in which they thrived, however momentarily, during the early years of the African Revolution, and to not be immobilized by failure or by what went wrong. For me, Frederick Cooper's work over the past decade, placing African independence in historical perspective, has helped opened up this realm of political imagination and decolonizing Africa to closer historical scrutiny. He has reminded us time and time again, in the early years of the African Revolution, a range of social and political possibilities opened up, and the territorial nation state was not the only, the single, 
the inevitable outcome. Finally, and this is far outside my area of expertise, is John Kelly and Martha Kaplan's important work on Fiji uh, in their 2001 book, Represented Communities, which helped me recognize not only that the displacement of radical and disruptive freedom dreams by an almost prefabbed nation state wasn't haphazard, wasn't random, wasn't coincidental, much less limited to the African continent. It is time, they argue, to configure decolonization as more than the end of something, but also the superimposition of something, the reconfiguration of local civil hierarchies into the terms of a new global plan for political order. So what I propose to do with my remaining time is to explore just one small place where a set of radical freedom dreams were generated and briefly flourished and how, where, and why they were so quickly extinguished. I'll focus on Ghana, because that's where I know best, the Black Star of Africa, in many ways the epicenter of the African Revolution from the mid-1950s till 1966. A, if if not the pivotal site for imagining and for debating an entirely new, non-aligned world, and not just for newly independent Ghanaians within the context of an independent nation state. Indeed, Ghana was ground zero for a dizzying array of transnational activists who, with their Ghanaian hosts, cooperated, colluded, collided over how to construct a new way forward toward a fully decolonized, non-racial, anti-imperialist, nuclear-free world, a world which only a few years later would be rendered completely unimaginable. They did this in a range of contexts, but I want to tighten my focus to just one, to the founding and to the early development of the Institute of African Studies at the University of Ghana. Universities have featured fairly largely in what we've done over the past uh, few days at the workshop, so it seems appropriate. But I'll argue that it also stood in the crosshairs of global efforts, not just national efforts, global efforts to decolonize minds and Africanize knowledge production in previously unimaginable ways. I want to construct the African Revolution in that place, at that register, in order to demonstrate how a diverse transnational, a decidedly not national group, of individual actors converged in one place at one time and began to imagine radically different kinds of futures and radically different kinds of pasts. Only at this register is it possible to see how quickly, like a flash of gunfire, subversive dreams could be extinguished and radical thinkers dispersed. The Institute of African Studies officially opened as a semi-autonomous unit within the University of Ghana on the 25th of October, 1963, though it began offering courses about a year earlier. In his address at the Institute's opening, Kwame Nkrumah, who would be Ghana's first president, set out its broad mandate and core responsibilities with regard to knowledge production. I quote, First and foremost, I would emphasize the need for a reinterpretation of our past. We have to recognize, frankly that African studies in the form in which they have been developed in the universities and centers of learning in the West, i.e. area studies, Title VI for those of you who have inhabited uh, U.S. universities, have been largely influenced by the concepts of old-style colonial studies and still to some extent remain under the shadow of colonial ideologies and mentality. According to Nkrumah's vision, one of the most important functions of this new institute was to study the history, culture, institutions, language, arts of Ghana and of Africa as a whole in new African-centered ways, in entire freedom, and I quote, 
from the propositions and presuppositions of the colonial epoch and from the distortions of those who continue to make European studies of Africa the basis of their assessment. He envisioned an institute through which the African genius would find its best expression. Now, to be clear, by African genius, Nkrumah explained he didn't mean a vague brotherhood based on a criterion of color or on the idea that Africans have no reasoning but only sensitivity. He wanted to emphasize, quote, something positive, our social conception of society, the efficiency and validity of our traditional statecraft, our highly developed code of morals, our hospitality, and our purposeful energy. And as importantly, Nkrumah encouraged the Institute to conceive of its function as being to study Africa in its widest possible sense, Africa in all its complexity, diversity, and its underlying unity. And that's important. This is essentially an institute of African studies, not Ghana studies, not West African studies. Moreover, in many ways, Nkrumah saw the institute as a beachhead into what was really a very conservative colonial institution, a beachhead from which higher education would be totally transformed. The Institute must help to foster, in, and this is just an image uh, from King's College at Oxford, which the University of Ghana was absolutely modeled on, modeled on with high table and, and the whole bit. The Institute must help to foster in our university and other education institutions the kind of education which will produce devoted men and women with imagination and ideas who by their life and actions can inspire our people to a great future. Let us remember that as the aims and needs of our society change, so our educational institutions must be adjusted and adapted to reflect that change. The time has come for the gown to come to town. Now the newness, the promise, and the transformative potential of the Institute captured in Nkrumah's words in 63 perhaps obscures what had been many years of, of battle within the university about, about just what is African studies at an African university? What would it mean in a post-colonial context? In the late colonial period and immediate post-independence period when the University of Ghana was still the university college of the Gold Coast and operating directly under the University of London, there had been some discussion about having a department of African studies very much modeled on the area studies vision. At that time, higher education looked uh, very much like this in Ghana. But by 1959 on campus, there began to be a different kind of a conversation and it included all different sorts of people, some who were Ghanaian, some who had been drawn to Ghana for a number of reasons. Included in this conversation in 59, for example, was J.H. Nkatia, who would go on to become the premier ethnomusicologist on the entire continent, but also expatriates like uh, Saint Professor St. Clair Drake, who was the head of the sociology department at the time. He's a pan, uh, famous Pan-African sociologist, anthropologist, co-author of Black Metropolis, who would be instrumental in developing Black studies in the United States. Discussions and debates, uh, it also included, I'm sorry, Horace Mann Bunn. Discussions and debates were transnational, they were lively, they were engaged, and then they gained further momentum when Nkrumah set up a commission to examine how to move the University College of Ghana into uh, its position as a university. And for that particular task, he brought in all kinds of people, this sort of kind of a cherry picking, no um, East versus West. There was a little bit of everything there. So he brought in Horace Mann Bond from Lincoln University, brought in N.S. Toroschesnikov, a noted chemist from Moscow Mendeleev Chemical Institute, 
And then he brought in uh, various, uh, he brought in uh, Joint Secretary Thomas Hodgkin, who was then a research fellow at McGill University and then his own Minister of Foreign Affairs. He made a point that there were representatives from the U.S., from Britain, from the Soviet Union. There were social scientists, humanities scholars, people from uh, historically black colleges and universities in the U.S., and people who were experts in women's education. What this commission ended up doing was not only developing a vision for the university, but they foregrounded the idea that the university needed an Institute of African Studies bolder in its interdisciplinarity than anything imagined earlier and situated not on the margins of the disciplines as some small area studies department, but as the very center of a completely re-envisioned African university where African research and African-centered teaching would go hand in hand. So this was sort of the vision that was handed off. So in essence, what was on the table in 1961 as the University of Ghana was coming into being was a completely new conception of African studies, very different from what we were seeing in the U.S., of knowledge production about Africa, and the older area studies model was off the table. Now it would not, it was the area studies would no longer be tied to imperial expertise. It couldn't be disciplined into the various disciplines of the university. It would be a site from which knowledge production in and about colonial Africa might be completely rethought. By all appearances, the very first director of the institute, Thomas Hodgkin, handpicked by Nkrumah, might seem a rather strange choice to head up an institution whose goal was to Africanize knowledge production. But Hodgkin had a very long history as a vocal critic of British imperialism. He first visited the Gold Coast back in 1947, had a deep interest in African history. He knew Nkrumah well from his days when he was in the UK, and he had published widely um, in African history. Hodgkin agreed to come for two short years to get the Institute off the ground and, and only after substantial discussion about who his African successor would be. As he wrote to Nkrumah at one point, quote, I only took on the directorship of the Institute because I felt that it was here in Ghana there was a far better prospect of developing a new approach to African studies than anywhere else in the world. Now, after his arrival, the Institute began to implement its ambitious agenda. By 1962, it had MA students, it had diploma courses, it had research and publication programs that were set up on a range of topics, oral literature, pre-colonial African history, the collection of West African Arabic manuscripts, which were really important for countering this idea that Africa had no written history outside of Europe, its contact with Europe. And most of these activities appeared, the publications, the visitors, the, the MA students all appeared in the local press. An, an excellent example, yeah, here's a picture. This is Nkrumah uh, with historian Ivor Wilkes looking at some of those Arabic uh, manuscripts in 1963. So all of this stuff gets covered daily in the press. An ex excellent example is uh, Hodgkin's own three-part series in the Ghanaian Times, which ran in October 64, focused on the African Revolution. Here, he sought to answer the question, why is African studies research important? How can African studies, in the sense of the, and I'm quoting here, the study of African history, institutions, language, arts, literature, assist in the process of the African Revolution? He replied, we need to build up systematically as comprehensive body of source material as possible to disprove those myths and then to undertake the process of reinterpretation of the evidence and the making available of the results of this interpretation, not only through articles and books, 
but through the various channels through which knowledge can be diffused. That this project had to be Africa-based, Africa-centered was absolutely crucial to his argument. Rhetorically, he asked, why not let us with our ample resources in Birmingham, Boston, Bordeaux, Brussels, do this job of research in African studies? He replied, though there are some honest men in all these places, the next 10 years may well be decisive for the African revolution. Hence, it is precisely during this period that it is essential to develop within Africa centers of African studies that are liberated as far as humanly possible from conventional Western presuppositions. And it was only in those Africa-based centers that it was possible to produce knowledge, quote, about the play of social and political forces in the various African states in which one has confidence. And that new knowledge, he argued, was absolutely critical not only to those working to achieve an increasing measure of African unity to understand the specific nature of the problems in other parts of the continent, but for historians of the future whose job it would be to reconstruct the history of that revolution. Now, the Institute records from those days are fascinating, a frenetic pace of research, teaching, public outreach, people coming from all over the world, source collection. They also demonstrate how important the Institute was to Nkrumah and to Nkrumah and his vision of African unity. Not only did it occupy a special and protected semi, it had its own budget line from government that wasn't hindered by the university. Nkrumah also became directly involved in what was going on in the Institute. In one instance, for example, um, in 1964, famed uh, British historian Basil Davidson arrived at the Institute to assist, assist with plans to develop a textbook on the history of Africa for use in secondary schools, colleges, and universities in the continent. A full synopsis of that project was shared with Nkrumah, and the subsequent discussions illustrate Nkrumah's vision of African studies. He wrote immediately to Thomas Hodgkin, complimenting him on this important effort, but encouraging those involved to foreground Pan-African unity, quote, the historical and cultural oneness of Africa. Another point I would like to make, he wrote, and you know he's running a state at this time, and yet he's concerned about what's in these textbooks, is that I did not see in the synopsis any reference to the African abroad and to the connections and relations of Africans with the peoples of African descent in the Americas, the Caribbean, and other parts of the world. With regard to the North African section, there is nothing about the Coptic influence in Egypt. When Hodgkin wrote back to Nkrumah several days later, he assured him his concerns would be addressed, including more attention to the activities and contributions of peoples of African descent. A point Hodgkin noted that he had had the opportunity to discuss at length with Dr. Eric Williams during his visit to the Institute. And of course, Dr. Williams was none other than the famous Caribbean historian, author of Capitalism and Slavery, who would become the first prime minister of Trinidad. In other words, the Institute's foundational textbook in African history had to challenge any and all paradigms that treated North Africa as separate and distinct, or that ignored the connections among people of African descent. Indeed, by the time that the Institute officially opened in 1963, it already had constituted itself as a major dynamic postgraduate teaching center, research center, drawing people from all over the world. In its vision and in its praxis, it was transcending, I would argue, in bold and innovative ways, older paradigms of knowledge production, and for those efforts, it was garnering substantial international attention. Nkrumah and the Institute's multinational faculty certainly considered it to be in the vanguard of a pan-African movement to reimagine, to reinvent, 
how knowledge about Africa was produced, interpreted, and circulated. They were especially, the Institute was especially interested in transcending the Arabic, English, French divide and knowledge production about West and North Africa from the beginning, both Arabic and French were incorporated into the Institute's postgraduate training. Historian Joseph Kizerbo from the Lycée de Ouagadougou, for example, was a visiting professor on numerous occasions. The Institute also worked to counter the increasingly insurmountable Cold War barriers between knowledge production of the so-called East and West. For example, in 64, the director was anxious that Joan Lai visit the Institute to discuss further cooperation with China in the field of African studies. And one of the um, first MA students at the Institute was actually from Poland. The coherence in the Institute's agenda came from the fact that it was consistently and unapologetically Africa-centered. Non-Africans, as Nkrumah stated at the opening, are welcome to work here with us. Intellectually, there is no barrier between us and them, but they must not try simply to reproduce here their own diverse patterns of education and culture. They must embrace and develop those aspirations and responsibilities which are clearly essential for maintaining a progressive and dynamic African society. In the history of knowledge production about Africa, I would argue, this constituted an extraordinary moment that is all too often omitted in genealogies of what we still know of today as African studies much less of decolonization and post-colonial education. It was a moment bursting with possibilities in which engaged in rigorous debate, Africa-centered, Africa-based was the prerequisite. No epistemic paradigm was understood as hegemonic and African studies was envisioned as a site for a full reimagining of higher education in African in an African post-colonial world. For a moment anyway, the grounds of knowledge production about Africa had shifted dramatically. This was probably nowhere more evident than at a December 1962 International Congress of Africanists held in Accra, the capital of of Ghana. The original idea for such a Congress actually came out of discussions at the August 1960 meeting of the International Congress of Orientalists that was held in Moscow. Kenneth Dike, the pioneering African historian from the University of Ibadan, served as the Congress's chairperson, and as one of his first tasks, he invited Melville Herskovitz, the sort of premier American-based anthropologist of Africa, one of the founding fathers of African studies in the U.S., and his Soviet counterpart, Ivan uh, Potekin of the African Institute in Moscow, to draft a constitution for the Congress. This was a striking move aimed at transcending the Cold War, the East-West divide in African studies, It was certainly an important intellectual manifestation of Nkrumah's popular axiom, we face neither East nor West, we face forward. In the end, the Congress attracted some 600 scholars and observers, and while many of those scholars came from North America and Europe, many did not. In addition to hearing plenary addresses by Herskovitz and Elion Diop, founding editor of Présence Africaine, Those in attendance were welcomed by both President Nkrumah and Dr. W.B. Du Bois, who had relocated to Ghana in 1962 at Nkrumah's invitation to launch his Encyclopedia Africana project, which first um, he first dreamed of in the 1930s, but it never really got off the ground. And Nkrumah invites him at Independence, come back, we'll do it here. By all evidence, that first Congress was an extraordinary event 
which demonstrated how much the, the center of gravity had shifted in knowledge production about Africa across the globe. It was the first international meeting of scholars interested in Africa from across the globe to take place on the African continent and to be organized by African scholars and scholars based in Africa. Within a few short years, this monumental event would be largely forgotten. But in 1962, it was an unparalleled opportunity for Africans and people of African descent to insist upon, to claim their place or even their centrality in the production of knowledge about Africa. This was nowhere more evident than in the meeting of Congress attendees, which focused on Du Bois' encyclopedia project. Du Bois and his associate director, Alpheus Hunton, used the occasion of the Congress to meet with experts from around the world to solicit their thoughts on how this Pan-African Encyclopedia project should proceed. There was strong participation from the U.S., from Britain and France, but also from China, the West Indies, the Soviet Union, Poland, India, and elsewhere. Now, Du Bois and Hutton hoped that what would happen is there would be a discussion about how this should proceed. But in fact, what happened was there was huge disagreement about who had authority to put together this encyclopedia, and there were many, including Herskovitz and anthropologist Daryl Ford, who insisted that in one way or the other, the work of the entire project should be immediately taken over by an international group of experts. Others thought that there should be some sort of international directorate, which could include African representation, but which would place emphasis on high scholarship. I mean, the coding here is incredible rather than on a specifically African point of view, as if these were mutually exclusive categories. From a variety of reports, it is clear that in this impassioned discussion and in many others, a very serious debate was unfolding in Accra in 62 for perhaps the very first time, which in stark and frank terms was about the racial politics of knowledge production about Africa. This was a debate that included leading figures in African studies from virtually every corner of the globe. And the fact that this epistemic crisis was unfolding in a post-colonial African country, which took seriously the challenge of completely reimagining Africa and African studies, was not insignificant. The terrain for debate had clearly shifted. By nurturing the, the bold Pan-African research agenda of the Institute of African Studies, Nkrumah and an international array of scholar activists were instrumental in creating a space, a site that I'd like of radical convergence, where new pasts and new futures could be imagined and from which colonial and Eurocentric visions of Africa could be attacked and dismantled. The Africanization of African studies as it was unfolding in Ghana posited the centrality of African institutions and African scholars to the decolonization of African studies, to the production of knowledge about Africa, and at least to some degree, threw open to question the organization and the mission of the post-colonial university, a discussion, I might add, that's continuing uh, at this very moment. This is not to argue that Ghana in the 1960s was some kind of African studies paradise, as has been well documented. The relationship between the state and African intellectuals has been a fraught one, even in the early years of independence. But to focus exclusively on African state university politics in the early 60s is to ignore, I would argue, the importance of new oppositional, subversive forms of knowledge production and to miss the powerful challenges that were being mounted against 
the hegemony of the Western Academy, and ultimately of U.S. empire in the early global 60s. In many ways, Ghana, tiny country though it may have been, was the epicenter of this challenge as Africanist intellectual power brokers like Melville Herskovitz and Jack Goody were not only questioned, but taken to task. Indeed, the competing visions of African studies, the fact that they could collide in Accra in the early 60s, in ways they, they did this in ways that were unimaginable before or alas, a decade later. And it was a collision that laid bare the racial politics of knowledge production. It was a collision whose outcome appeared, for the moment anyway, not to be predetermined by the power and authority of white specialists based in elite institutions in North America and Europe. But the challenge being mounted from Accra over authority, legitimacy, location, and power in the production of knowledge about Africa was not contained by or within some pristine, isolated academic sanctuary, but in a Cold War world where local and global politics could intervene without notice, not just reconfiguring the terms of the debate, but obliterating the encounter altogether, and with it, all the possibilities that might have been imagined if not realized. On February the 24th, 1966, Nkrumah was overthrown in a military coup, which had the support of many top U.S. government officials. There were many casualties of that coup, but one that has not been fully appreciated, I would argue, is knowledge production about Africa and the spaces where Africans and their progressive allies international allies could imagine, with colonialism's demise, a new global politics of the possible. The National Liberation Council, as the military government termed itself, was not unaware of the significance of these spaces globally. While the NLC did not initially abolish, for example, the Encyclopedia Africana project, it placed in charge of it a Ghanaian who had been trained at Oxford in European classics and was a staunch opponent of Nkrumah's. And um, at the end of the year, the deported Hunton and his wife, uh, Dr. Du Bois, had, du Bois had passed away earlier. His wife fled after the coup to Cairo. In fact, if not in name, the Encyclopedia Project ended with the coup. The Institute of African Studies came under the similar scrutiny and reorganization shortly after the coup. The NLC appointed Professor K.A. Busia perhaps Nkrumah's most prominent and vocal opponent to chair a committee on, quote, the delimitation of functions of university institutions. And the university's new vice chancellor also tasked him with developing a plan for reorganizing the Institute of African Studies. And the year after the coup, the core missions of the Institute and its relationship to the university were closely re-examined more conservative African area studies scholars from Europe and the United States were called in to share their thoughts on what the Institute's academic agenda should be. In the end, almost all of its international faculty departed and many of the Ghanaian faculty fled into exile. The Institute's role in generating knowledge and shaping knowledge production on a global stage was greatly circumscribed and its pedagogical and research agendas shoehorned in or better disciplined into a narrow neo-colonial state university system. As I conclude these reflections on the 60s and the African Revolution, I want to return to Fanon or my rendering of Fanon and his 1961 prediction, the fate of all of us was at stake in the Congo. It was also at stake, I would argue, in Algeria in 1965. The future, the trajectory of the global 60s 
its imprint on the course of global history, from Paris to Berkeley to Prague, was in countless ways made in Africa. Nkrumah was one of several canaries in the mine. Because the fates of radical political imaginaries were fundamentally and inevitably intertwined, the defeat of the African Revolution had profound repercussions far beyond the continent, and I can't emphasize that enough. That is perhaps nowhere more evident than in the short story I just shared with you about the Institute and knowledge production about Africa. In the late 1960s in the United States, African-American African scholars and students with a few white allies launched a major challenge to the domination and control of African studies in the U.S. by white scholars at elite and predominantly white institutions. Many of the very same scholars who had collided with Nkrumah and Du Bois in Ghana in the early 60s. By 1969, what had been a small black caucus within the African Studies Association was transformed into the African Heritage Studies Association, which among other things demanded, echoing Nkrumah, quote, that the study of African life be undertaken from a pan-African perspective. Similar protests erupted from South Africa to the Caribbean, but in the end, and even though there were some gains in representation, the balance of power and knowledge production about African studies has remained remarkably constant. Why? I would argue that without a strong continent-based alternative to the hegemony of the Western Academy, the kinds of alternatives that were being imagined by a dynamic cohort of African and expatriate scholars and activists who converged in a, into Accra in the 1960s, it's hard to imagine an outcome any different. In short, African area studies in the U.S. today is very much the product of what the military dismantled in Accra 50 years ago. The point I'm trying to make here is that in thinking about the glo global 60s, we have had a tendency to understand Africa and the African Revolution as bearing only African consequences and none very positive at that. We have shoehorned a moment of unbridled optimism, of imagining entirely new global histories, new global politics into simple stories of nation building and independence and then their failures. Small stories, short stories like that of the Institute of African Studies have been easily folded into grand narratives that are either national or neo-colonial, sometimes both. They are either part and parcel of failed national or nation state stories, or they are proof positive of the inevitability of neocolonialism. For example, Nkrumah had to turn to expatriates and British ones at that, people like Thomas Hodgkin, because there just there weren't enough experts uh, in the country, completely ignoring the sort of politics, the strategic politics that were actually happening in those kind of engagements. Neither paradigm, national or neocolonial, captures short-lived though they were, the political heterogeneity the global complexity, the boundless radical politics of the possible. In places like Accra, all sorts of future worlds were being imagined, and not just by African nationalists, by Pan-Africanists, socialists, communists, social democrats, a few anarchists, anarchists. They were drawn from far and wide by the promise of as yet unimagined possibilities. These were global sites of radical or subversive convergence where visions, conflicting and competing though they may have been, far transcended the singular African nation-state story. These were messy sites, chaotic sites that do not fit easily 
into Cold War binaries or national histories, but they were incredibly generative sites of new ideas, new political imaginaries, new freedom dreams. Leslie Lacey, a young African-American student who, was, who immigrated to Ghana in the early 60s, he was a student at the Institute of African Studies, and he, he wrote a, um, a short autobiography, and it captures really the chaos, the cacophony of that moment. I quote, we were a strange and varied lot, looking for a special kind of reality we could not find in our own countries. The modern world had come, ex-Garveyites from the West Indies and North America, black South Africans without a country, white communists and liberals from South Africa, African freedom fighters talking about revolution, Zionists who called themselves professional Marxists, black nationalists from America and white communists from America bringing all their fights, factions and fictions. The Chinese came and the Russians were right behind them. Then the Japanese Marxists arrived and of course the Cubans who were being watched by the CIA living near the Peace Corps volunteers. And to this already varied group were added other talents, black communists from Europe pretending to be radical black nationalists with their white wives, pie-in-the-sky seekers, two hippies, one queer, pimps, whores of all nations, a professional gangster and many minor thieves, a few serious scholars, two ex-Nazis, a few artists, many published and unpublished writers, broken personalities, rejects of the modern world, a professional hedonist, and me, an upper-middle-class Negro from the state of Louisiana. How post-colonial, non-aligned governments like Nkrumah manage this convergence, this collusion of this collision of subversive dreams is beyond uh, the scope of my comments this evening. But I do want to underscore that these sites of the African Revolution were generative of all kinds of political possibilities, all manner of freedom dreams. And because of that generative power, they were dangerous places to some, particularly to those who held a stake in a world order that faced either East or West. Indeed, I'm intrigued by the fact that many of these subversive sites were obliterated in similar fashion by the direct intervention of the military, often with US knowledge and our support. I suspect we need to think more critically about what post-colonial militaries are capable of annihilating or dismantling in ways that other forms of state intervention are not. Within a matter of hours, they can assassinate, deport, exile, and disperse, and then seal national borders. Perhaps it is not just coincidence that military coups in Africa decreased dramatically in number once the freedom dreamers were assassinated, exiled or dispersed, and the African nation state securely fitted into the neo-colonial world order. The postmortem of the African revolution that I've sought to capture here with one institutional example, maybe not even the best one, asks that we recognize the centrality of that revolution to the inauguration constitution and ultimate fate of the global 60s that we mourn with the defeat of that revolution, the momentary boundlessness of the possible, the multitude of subversive political imaginings, and the sites where those flourished, however briefly. By 1966, I would argue, and I'm not sure I'm convinced of this, but I'll be anxious to hear what other people think. By 1966, most African freedom dreamers, whether in Mozambique, Angola, South Africa, or Zimbabwe, understood the inevitability of the nation state and the entrenchment of a neo-colonial world order in which you had to face either East or West. Of course, military coups can't kill dreams, nor all of the dreamers, but with surgical precision, they were decisively effective at destroying or undermining the networks 
the shifting sites of confluence, the hubs, as some have termed them, termed them of radical subversive convergence and of enforcing, enforcing the boundaries of the post-colonial nation state. Within days of the coup that overthrew Nkrumah, virtually all of his major supporters were detained and are fled into exile. Almost everyone on Leslie Lacey's list of expatriate dreamers had fled or been deported. I'm not sure what lessons from the African revolution we might carry forward from the global 60s to today. On the one hand, new forms of social media from the Arab Spring to Black Lives Matter have made possible all kinds of radical convergence and confluence, spaces both virtual and sometimes real, that are not so easily destroyed or dispersed by military or police action. But at the same time, the security state and mechanisms of surveillance from cameras on every corner to big data mining of phone records to spy drones, all completely unthinkable even a decade ago, have kept a pace, drawing new battle lines and increasingly circumscribing the spaces where the unimaginable can be imagined and reimagined, where new freedom dreams can flourish. And those spaces, whether on street corners, union halls, churches, mosques, or on university campuses like this one, are profoundly important. Unless we have the space to imagine, as Robin Kelly reminds us, and a vision of what it means fully to realize our humanity, all the protests, demonstrations in the world won't bring about our liberation. Thank you. Questions? Yes, sir. Well, I want to do two things. First of all, I want to disagree with some of the comments from the back. First of all, I saw this talk as a little gem, a little microcosm about the politics of knowledge. And I think that's a very important intervention. But I also don't agree about the pessimism because I think it's very important to know what we've lost if we're going to think about going forward. Then I'll just say a very few words about the extremely important question of where were the women. I'm not an Africanist, as a lot of people here know, but I am a historian, and so I think about how would I go about researching that? I mean, first of all, one has to look at the levels of education among African women. We have to look at the kinds of work that African women were doing. And but the, maybe the last thing I'll mention is we need to look at the work of, shall we say, the women who were connected with these men and their work that made the men's work possible, right? As to how that can change, that's going to have to come from a women's movement. But I don't, I don't see it as a flaw in this talk because I don't see a talk uh, like this as having, having to do everything. Thing. Although, it, of course, it would have been possible to gesture to and acknowledge right. the absence of women. But the final thing I want to say about the question of whether ideas and knowledge have power is somebody, some forces, didn't like what was going on at that institute. It, in other words, somebody had an investment in getting rid of what was going on, and that very fact suggests something, I think, about the power of ideas and particularly about history. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. 
You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.